Hello everybody and welcome to the Nordic Football Podcast. We are back with an exclusive interview for another week. Um, everything's on lockdown as you know at the moment. Things have been quiet in Scandinavia and the world in general. I hope you're all doing very well and keeping yourself safe. And social distancing of course, that's the important thing. Um, we're delighted to say that we're joined by a special guest on this show from the Norwegian region. Uh, and I'm very happy to say we're joined by Jack Brazil who is... Uh, the under-12s elite head coach at Valerenga, uh, youth coach at Valerenga. And I know my pronunciation of Valerenga is probably completely wrong, but uh, Jack, I'm sure you're going to educate me on that one. Uh, welcome to the show, and how are you getting on in Norway? Yes, yes, uh, nice to have me on. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's nice to you know participate in things that are increasing the awareness of, of what we're doing in the in the Nordic region. Um, so thank you, first of all, for having me on. Um, here, right now, everything's okay. We, we, we're really opening up um, sort of within Oslo, uh, where I'm based. Um, the, the club, Volerenga, uh, we've started training again um, with an, under some severe rules and regulations, but life is starting to return to some kind of normality here. Um, shops are opening, um, the, the hairdressers are opening, shops and supermarkets have always been open but there's more produce being made available there's less restrictions on what you do in those shops and so on and so forth so yes there seems to be you know a light at the end of the tunnel that's really good to hear it sounds like um yeah i mean obviously from following the developments in norway quite closely they you know they i think lockdown measures maybe work relatively well compared to perhaps other countries um out there how i mean you've been in uh, Oslo for a while. I know we're going to talk about your general journey into coaching and how you've ended up at um, at the club. Obviously, a huge club in Norway. Um, but I want to kind of start by just talking about um, you in general. I mean, you know, tell us about your path into um, coaching, just as a, you know, in general, your background. Obviously, I'm assuming you're English, um, but uh, obviously, never never good to assume with a surname like Brazil as well. You know, so there's a multinational uh, surname there. Um, tell us about yourself and you know who you are. Let's sort of introduce yourself to the um, listeners, maybe who, who may not be aware of you. Yeah, um, so I'm Jack Brazil. I, I grew up in the UK um, uh, most of my life in, in Nottingham. Um, I was I was brought from about five years of age through to when I went to university uh, in Coventry. Um, I think I had that heart-rending moment that most young boys have between the age of probably 14 to 18, where you realise, and maybe probably a little bit earlier in some cases, where you realise this, this dream of becoming a professional footballer isn't happening. Um, mine came at about probably 14, 15, when I saw my friends getting the opportunity to go to clubs and, and, and I wasn't and, and sort of seeing that I was not of the standard that they were. So, you know, with my with, you know, my family's influence, um, I decided to take up coaching and did my level one when I was 16 and I really enjoyed it. I started coaching at 16 years old and um, it just became a bit of a, a passion of mine. Um, it was it was a side thing. It was just something I did for fun when I went through my, my, my sixth form and my, my sort of college years. And then as I went to university, I started taking it more seriously. Um, and then when we got to the end of university, I was offered a, a full-time job in coaching and it's uh, it sort of progressed on from there. So, Quality. Yeah, how, um, how old are you at the moment? I'm 26. So I've been coaching now for yeah, just, just over 10 years. Okay, that's great. So yeah, a young coach obviously, but you've got a decent body of experience there. Um, yeah, funnily enough, I went to Nottingham Uni, so uh, I know the city well. It's a great city. Um, yeah, it's lovely. Were you were you Forest or were you particularly other club when you were growing up? Or? 
supporting? So I actually grew up just south of London in Surrey, um, a place called Epsom. So yeah, I, I don't really have an affiliation for a club down there. The, my first footballing memory is Michael Owen scoring against Argentina. <laughs> I got a Liverpool shirt with Michael Owen on the back, and ever since I've been a Liverpool fan. Um, I don't know any different. I have an affiliation with Forrester. I, I, I like them a lot. Um, I always want them to succeed, but it's not. I'm not a proper fan. I can't say that I'm on the terrace, and it, it hurts <laughs> yeah. me when they lose, as it does with my friends. How, so you, um, you've, you've been coaching for quite a while, um, and you talked about your first opportunities with, within coaching. How did it progress from where you are, uh, where you were, to sort of where you are now in Oslo? Um, tell us about you know that pathway. It's been a lot of playing journeys. Um, I've coached all over the world now. I've been very, very fortunate with my opportunities, um, and, and people have, have believed in me and, and trusted me with with these opportunities. You know, when I was starting my university journey, um, I was just coaching sort of the fourth team at university. That's very much a, a fun team. Turn up, they just want to play for fun, and and that summer I got an opportunity to coach in the what was the Mongolian Premier League at that time. Um, the competitions have changed structure slightly now, but it was one of the top divisions in in Mongolia. So I went over there for the summer. Coached their league for three months that was really amazing um, and then since then I got the book for coaching abroad um, the next summer I coached in the Caribbean for a few weeks with my university team um, then went to Gibraltar and Spain and coached there and then after that through my previous Caribbean experience my name had got around a little bit and uh, was offered a full-time job in the Cayman Islands um, to coach in their top division and also run uh sort of coaching company there uh, for youth sort of youth development program and then once I've been doing that for a couple of years I was getting itchy and wanting to travel again um, contacted some friends that I had here in Norway uh, and uh, I got an opportunity um, through them at, at Volaranga um, yeah, I mean, in a small position and then I've, I've, I've built myself up to, to sort of the position I'm in now yeah I mean I took the opportunity to take a look at your um, your LinkedIn page which is you know quite detailed and and uh, yeah the the experience of Cayman Islands definitely definitely struck me I mean before we delve into the, the Norwegian <clears throat> side of things the Scandinavian side of things you, I need to know a bit more about this uh, Cayman Islands experience I, I mean such a you know you wouldn't you wouldn't probably associate Cayman Islands with football to be honest how was that and, you know it's, you know it sounds like you're very successful there as well what was that experience like and t- tell us a little bit about that it was it was it was a real um, crash course in developing as a coach because there's only sixty thousand people actually within the country and on that particular island I lived on Grand Cayman um, there was probably fifty five thousand people everyone knows everyone so if you do something wrong everyone knows about it um, and if you do something right everyone knows about it so your reputation as a coach if it's good you get the best players straight away and they will move clubs to be for the best to play for the best coaches and, and be with the best coaches and the ones that care the most there's not much money in the game um, you, you can sign players basically on free contracts you can supplement them via we supplemented some of our youth players by allowing them to coach our youth teams for example or they would work for sort of the equivalent of our chairman or our technical directors businesses and so on and so forth but it was it was genuinely just a case of an amateur program and really professionalizing it um you know when i took it over and it was you know a really exciting project to be part of the club was very very good in youth terms but we didn't have a very good um the adult setup so it was my job really to sort of establish a first team program and, and we were quite successful and you know, by the end of the ter- the end of my time there we managed to win the the FA Cup or the Cayman Islands FA Cup that was a really nice experience but again it was it was a crash course because the population's so small your reputation 
is very important for recruiting players. So I knew mm. if I did a good job, I'd get the best players. What, what was the name of the? What was the name of the? Spread. What was the name of the team? Sorry, um, is it because obviously? It was an academy sports club. Oh, okay. um, so there was when I arrived, there were sixteen clubs in Ireland. I think by the time I'd left, there was fourteen. Yeah. Um, but they were spread across two different islands. So right. it was it was a bit of a special moment when you had to get on a plane for an away day, coming from <laughs> you know the middle of England, where you, the furthest you travel is an hour. Yeah, yeah. Getting on a plane for an away day was a big deal for me. I thought I've got to suit up for this. It's yeah, yeah. League day. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was, obviously Cayman Islands. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's like a, probably more associated with bank accounts than football clubs to a certain extent if, uh, in people's minds. What what would you say, um, I mean, as a youth coach, you know, you had such success there, like you said, winning the cup and that kind of thing. What? How have you built your philosophies and ideas, um, you know, in terms of youth coaching? Who are the people that you've kind of maybe learned from in this, in your early period of your career? Um, because I can imagine, for example, you know, if you've got, a, let's say, you've got a level one coaching badge or something like that, and you're looking to study youth football, um, how do you actually get that kind of knowledge and experience? Was it a lot of learning on the job for you, or is it kind of, um, you know, studying particular things or being coach mentored that kind of thing? What was the key to you becoming such a successful coach so early on? I mean, I'm very, very fortunate. Just, to, just to say before, you know, it, it's, it's apparent. My father works at Nottingham Forest. He's the academy manager there. Um, he's been an ex-professional player, been very, very successful in his own personal coaching within the youth, um, the youth structures. He worked at Fulham when I was young. So even from like 12, 13, 14, he was the, I think it was the academy technical director and the under-18s coach at Fulham. Mm. I was in that environment every day. Um, so subconsciously, I was learning. Chris Coleman, Roy Hodgson were the managers, Mark Hughes. I was at my dad's office when he was training, watching first team training sessions, wow. not really knowing what was going on, but subconsciously I was learning these things. And then yeah. as I came to coaching, I had an idea of this is what a training session should look like. This is where it goes. Um, and he was always a really good soundboard for me just to talk to my dad and say, you know, this has happened. What do you think? Um, he, he never gave me too much information. He was very good at that very good at me finding my own way and learning my own way mm. but he, he was very good at just being that soundboard and saying have you thought of this have you thought of that and as it's grown uh, um, I've gained more and more mentors uh, and more people that have supported me I was about 19 years old I did some youth module courses um, and there's a coach mentor called John Griffiths um, who's now I think the under 17s or under 19s women's national team coach for England mm. um, and he was fantastic for me he kept in touch for you know, a couple of years and let me be you know, let me observe that environment and, and, and really mentored me in that regard. And he really sort of lit the touch paper early on for me um, in that regard. And then as I went into the university environment, um, you know, there were some really good people from Coventry City who I worked with um, and had a lot of respect for who helped me develop. Um, I did my B licence um, with, with several good coach educators, Ryan May being one of them, who was excellent with me. Um, mm. I really learned a lot from him and he, he again was similar to John in that he sort of lit that touch paper and gave me more to learn. He never said that was a definitive answer. He said, well, this is what you could do or this is what you could do. Um, yeah. So he was a really good mentor for me. And then as time's gone on, you know, I've, I've sort of internalized that ability to, you know, what could I do? What would, you know, what would Ryan ask me to do? What would John ask me to do? What would my dad ask me to do in these situations? Yeah. And then it sort of becomes something of a self-reflective process based on what I've learned from them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you, you left in 2018, I believe, Academy Sports Club. Was it was it kind of a natural process to leave or were you looking for a new experience? And then tell us about the move to, you know, Oslo itself and the offer from Bangalore. Because obviously you moved after a couple of months, I believe. 
um, you know, from Cayman Islands to straight to Norway. Is that right? Yeah. So um, it was. You know, it was. I, I I knew I had the opportunity to work in Norway before I left uh, the Cayman Islands. Um, it was coming up to at the end of my second year um, over there, and I was in. I was just talking to someone quite casually uh, about the opportunity of coming and working in Norway. Who was at the club? Um, it, it wasn't really going anywhere. Um, and then I just decided there was one morning where I woke up and I thought I need something more professional. I need to push myself a little bit more. Um, sure. And it was really difficult because I really love the people I worked with. I love the business I worked for. I love the, 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 the club I was working for. Everything about it, I look back with fond memories, but it was very comfortable for me by the end of the second year and I needed to push myself again. Mm. So I contacted um, a friend and said, is there anything going? And they, they offered me what was at that time, I think, a 60% contract. Um, the, the, the contracts are done on percentages here. It's not similar to England where you're part-time or full-time. It's a percentage of a 100% position. So I actually moved on a 60% position. That was, you know, not a lot to live on. Um, mm-hmm. And then slowly worked myself up to an 80% position by the end of 2019. Um, and then this year I, I come into a, a full-time, efficient, uh, effectively 100% position. Um but it, you know, it was the, the move to Oslo itself from the Cayman Islands was difficult. Can imagine. It was. Did, did you know anyone? Um, I mean, obviously, the, was it kind of? Did you know someone out in Oslo at the time? And how was that transition? Because you know, it's not the cheapest city in the world, is it? I can, you know, to live in. I've been there a couple of times. Um, mm. How was that transition? Honestly, like you say, on a six percent contract, and what were the challenges of of moving to the, what is, I imagine, quite a nice city to live in. It's lovely here. Uh, I'm very fortunate to live in Oslo. It's a great way of life. Um, great people. Um, very lucky to be at the club. But I, I only knew one person really, well, two people in Oslo. Um, when I moved here, I wasn't too knowledgeable um, of the area apart from studying Google Maps effectively. Fortunately, the finance bit wasn't so much of a shock because I think I got that when I moved from the UK to the Cayman Islands. Georgetown, the capital of the Cayman Islands, I think is or was at the time the second most expensive city to live in in the world. Not really yeah. a city, yeah. um, but that's what it was termed as. Yeah. So the move to Norway actually wasn't much of a shock. In fact, I actually thought there were some things that were quite a lot cheaper. Um, so that was a positive. Uh, I didn't have to deal with that. And then it, yeah, it was just finding an apartment, finding something close to the club and, and getting used to that difference. You know, it was yeah. very, very warm in the Cayman Islands, minimum degrees of 23, maximum of 33, 34, and then um, finding a temperature of, um, of, of, I think the day I moved it was 12 degrees and I was wearing thermals and wool and uh, <laughs> a big jacket and the person next to me was stood there in just his t-shirt and shorts. I thought, what have I got myself into here? Um, yeah. And that went until we experienced, I think the worst session we did was minus 12. Wow. Um, so within six months of me leaving, effectively, tropical paradise, I was coached in minus 12 degrees. Yeah, I can imagine that must have been a, a bit of a culture shock for you, for your body at least. Um, and, you know, what was the attraction from Valoringa itself? And actually, can you help me pronounce Valoringa? Because I'm probably going to get it wrong a couple of times here. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how, you know, how was it actually moving to the city? What were the challenges from that point of view? Imagine someone looking to you know, maybe move there or, you know, that kind of thing, adapting to that new life. Um, what were the things that you found, you know, in that city in particular? So, yeah, pronouncing it is um, the A with, it's 
I'll get completely panned by my friends who are Norwegian. I'll speak Norwegian here, but the A with the little dot on the top of it is pronounced like an oh, yeah. and I get that wrong completely. My housemate's probably laughing at me now, listening outside. Um, so it's kind of pronounced Volleringa. Yeah, um, it's the best way of doing it, but I pronounce it wrong myself now completely. But I have a good go at it. How, how is your How is your Norwegian in general? Have you Are you, are you any good at it? I mean, I think I'm okay. I'm quite comfortable speaking my under 12s. I'm quite comfortable coaching them in, in Norwegian. Oh, um, that's great. Uh, but my housemate, who's Norwegian and fluent, he still come. I came off a Skype call with one of them the other day when we were during the lockdown period, and we spoke. I thought we spoke, spoke really good Norwegian. Me and this 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 player, and uh, he turns to me and says, "I did not understand what either of you have just said. I think you've developed this own crossover hybrid language." Um, fair enough, fair enough. So I don't know what's happening, but uh, yeah, it's developing, mate. It's developing. Um, but if I was going to advise someone over here, um, it'll be it'd be be prepared to work long hours. Be prepared that it's you know it's going to impact quite heavily on your social and personal life. Um, the money isn't great when you first start, but once you start to get some kind of reputation and some kind of understanding that okay, this guy's an okay coach, he knows what he's doing, yeah. you'll reap the rewards and, and your lifestyle and everything will improve alongside it. But there is a, it's almost starting from your baseline again. Yeah. Uh, when you move over here, people don't really, I want to say they don't respect overseas experience, but they don't value it as highly as if you'd done it in Norway. Right. So you almost start from a baseline again. So you have to really grind through that first few months. And yeah. It wasn't easy. I got those a few times where I thought, why well, am I doing this? <laughs> um, yeah, can but imagine. then once I got through the other side now, it's really worth it for the opportunities I've got and what I can move on to in the future. Um, and I know my prospects will be quite strong based on where I am. Yeah. And what, what do you like about the um, city as well? You know, tell us a little bit about the city itself, places you've been, how it's picked up, um, you know, your general social life, that kind of thing. <laughs> so, I mean, we live... I live basically right next to the stadium. Um, oh, wow. This is the, the east. This is the east of the city. Um, yeah. So Volaranga is in the east of the city, and then the west of the city is, is Starbeck. Um, the, the, there's a river that runs through the city, and the, the, the tale or the story goes that the factory workers lived on the east, and the factory owners lived on the west. So the rich live in the west, and the, and the workers live in the in the east. So we have a very multicultural, um, not so affluent population. Yeah. So we have a very, very different makeup and different culture to our program in comparison to Starbuck when we go over there. Um, so it creates a real, really good rivalry. Um, so living in the city and you rep almost represent the working population when you live over this side and you work with the kids from this side. And it, yeah. it is an identity of, and they, you know, the, the, the club's motto is the club for all. Um, so we accept everyone from our, uh, f from the grassroots department, which I work in alongside the elite department. So we, we have an identity of, you know, anyone can come in and anyone can be part of this. And, and that's something that, you know, we're quite proud of um, maintaining. So, you know, living within the city, it is it, it, you, you have to you have to withhold that you're representing the club and its values. Um, that's yeah. something I'm really happy with. And then my social life, um, you know, within the club itself is very good. I love the people I work with, the, the coaching department of the youth teams. You know, from the second team, following a two down to me and the under 12s, across all the age groups, we're a really tight knit group. You know. Maybe once a month we'll have an opportunity to, to go out and go around someone's house and have a little bit of a, a party or something. And it, the actual feeling within is within us is good because we realise there's not much time to go out and socialise elsewhere yeah. uh, because we're very committed people. But it's it's a really good 
um, social life to be part of when you've got a tight-knit group of friends like we are. I can imagine, you know, moving out there as well. Like you just talked about Valeringa, we'll talk about them for a little bit before moving on to your coaching uh, a bit more. I've got a few more questions on your coaching side of things. But um, Valeringa, the club obviously had a mixed season last season. Um, with Ronnie Dyler leaving uh, recently, and um, well, but the, the, they at the same time, like you say, as a big club, and they had the fourth highest average attendance in the league last year. You know, this, this is a historically very big club in in, in Norway. Um, I suppose one question I want to start with on that general conversation about the club is how compartmentalised it is it between say youth and, and senior level? Um, did you have many dealings with you know for example Ronnie Dyler or the senior setup? Um, if so, what kind of dealings? What did you learn from them? Were you, were you able to learn from them? Tell us how the club operates um, between youth and you know that kind of thing and the transition that the club aims to put in place with the academy and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so we, we have the sporting director Jürgen Ingebrigtsen. Um, who, who oversees the whole program um, and then we have uh, the Dagli leader that's I guess is kind of like the equivalent of a chairman or a CEO um, mm-hmm. in the UK um, Eric Esposeth and then Thomas Hasselbrenn who's the who's like the equivalent of the academy manager he's the who's the clean chef um, they sort of make up what we call I think will be the technical heart so they're really important to the running and the, the, the operational side of the club sure. um, and, and with regards to our first team our integration would be you know we're able to watch all the sessions there's no problem you know my office is based in the stadium anyway so if i want to go and watch the first team train it's, it's not a problem at all um so i've had some i had some conversations with ronnie um you know he, he was very very welcoming very nice guy very busy man also um so it probably wasn't as much as i'd have wanted um but you know i also have to respect that he was he was very busy himself um but i never i can't have anything bad to say about him i thought he was you know very well respected in the club um and he, he conducted himself well um and, and particularly the the rest of his coaching staff um hokon lunov um Johannes Mersgaard, uh igor Asse, were, were, were really nice guys and um eagle's still there but johannes and um and uh, and Hoken have left now as well, but yeah, the, I integrated really well with them guys. Hoken was really interested and wanted to know a lot, and was really always open for a conversation. So that the, the integration was there, um, probably not quite as much as we wanted, but I think that was also down to the stress of what was going on with the first team level and and the difficulties, particularly they had in the second half of the year. In the first half of the year, they were they were really interested in us and they they really tried to be part of it and help out and I think it was difficult that second half of the year for, for all involved um, and that comes down to many factors um, I think including the, the, the sort of sale of um, the UK the UK um, yeah. who was excellent for us in the first half of the year and we really sort of missed a creative spark behind uh, behind the forwards um, after he went that was difficult to, to replace because he was such a, such a strong player in our league yeah, I mean that 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 move probably was inevitable, wasn't it? And given the quality of the player, um, but yeah, like you say, that it kind of the season kind of petered out to a certain extent. What what was the mood, you know, around the club at, at that time? Was it was it kind of quite down um, with the fans and that kind of thing? Because like you say, like you know, as we said, it is a it is a major club in Norway, uh, one we haven't covered too often on the podcast, to be fair. So it'd be interesting to hear your insights on on the club itself and where it's you know where it's heading at the moment and maybe outlook for the season as well to come. When it does eventually start, <laughs> it was it was it was tough. Um, you know, we all took it quite personally because you know we care quite a lot about what goes on from the youth department up. Um, we we have, we, have an, we have a vested interest in the first team, particularly with you know some of our young players getting the opportunities from the 19s and the second team. It was 
you know, we found it quite difficult, um, particularly back in the year because we were just willing them to do well, yeah. um, and that 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 was that was frustrating, and it definitely boiled over in a few meetings that. You know, we, we we were all frustrated. We really wanted to do better, um, but it was everyone's heart was in the right place, and everyone was working really hard to fix what was going on and, and find solutions for it. Um, so it wasn't through a lack of effort. The situation that was going on, people were working hard, um, and the, the relationship stayed pretty good within what was happening. It was just a you know a really difficult period for us to sort of find that that spark that we had with with um, Iduke, um behind the striker but I think moving forwards if we talk about the future with you know we've got Dog Island Fogoma now as the, as the manager yeah. um, and a lot of new first team staff in it was really, it's, you know, it's been unfortunate for them that I think they actually only came in about four or five weeks before the shutdown period um, and we've all been so much invested in our own worlds in this period um, of starting up I've been very invested in my world of, of really starting and tackling a new role in the under 12s and getting an idea of you know what's going on and how I'm going to make the best of it yeah. and sort of tackling the other parts around my role I haven't really integrated with the first team this season as yet um, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we hopefully go back in, in, in full force and, and full speed that I'll be able to to, to uh, build a good relationship with the guys yeah because you also coach the 17s I believe is that right or 16s um, one thing I'm interested to know is you know let's let's talk talk about the obvious which is the you know the, the situation around the world the pandemic and um, how has that impacted things in Norway specifically because uh, every country's had different reaction to it have you been very much on lockdown as we have in the UK or have you been um, <clears throat> has it, what, what have the differences been uh, one thing I saw on your Twitter account, which was really cool, is the, the social distancing sessions, which we'll we'll talk about in a minute. I've got a question on that. But um, what have the what's it what <clears throat> what has the day to day been like in that, in this period? Boring. Um, <laughs> I found it really difficult going from working a hundred percent, eleven twelve hours a day, you know, six seven days a week to to going to doing nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's me being completely honest. I think we closed down on March the fifth. I think was the day so we closed down really early we had less than a thousand cases when everything went into lockdown restaurants bars everything apart from essential services was closed uh, and it was a really hard lockdown for two weeks of you're not going out um, unless it's basically 100% necessary yeah. so I had some hospital and doctor's appointments I had to go out with the right paperwork to say that I could go out and so on and so forth um, my father was actually in the country at the time that the lockdown was announced so oh, he had wow. to get out before all those things my mum was meant to come out as well and, and she hasn't been able to um, it was about two days after the lockdown was announced she was unable to get here um, so there's it was it was a really really harsh lockdown um, no direct flights now between Norway and the UK that I know of mm. um, so it's, it's it's very very strict in that regard and they, they stopped very early and it was, you know, near enough, sort of five, six weeks like that, um, where you weren't allowed to really do anything. And it was stay inside, don't go out. Um, and then they started to allow people to go and train alone uh, on the pitches or exercise alone and so on and so forth. Um, and it started to be a little bit more loose. The, the clothes shops started to open, more sort of non-essential shops started to open. And then in this past week, we've had the, the, the hairdressers have opened again. Um, right. the, 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 the more, non, even more non-essential shops and so on and so forth have opened. The nurseries have opened, the schools from sort of grades one to four are open again. So it, it's really starting to go. And then 
we've we've been allowed to start training again. I think the official date was the 20th of April or the 21st of April, but we just took the decision to wait a week just to make sure that you know we could do it very safely and do it in the right way within our club. Yeah, and um, I mean, what, what are the what's the latest on the league returning? And you know, the, is there set dates now? Do you think they'll meet those dates? Um, and you know, do you think do you think in general the reaction's been um, effective in terms of potentially maybe having football back in Norway quite soon? Yeah, I think we'll have it back very very soon. Um, so the the first team at the moment are on a holiday break. They should come back on Monday, I believe. Um, so they've effectively taken their July break um, now yeah. and just accepted that they're going to work through until December. Uh, so I think what what we're aiming for is. June the 15th is the date that the country is set to be able to do more um, more large gatherings, so up to, I think, 500 people um, and so on and so forth. I believe that's the case. I'm not sure the rules seem to sort of change every few days, but that's the current tentative date. So I think what we're looking at is, is the league starting here probably by July the 1st uh, with right. the elite Syrian um, and also the top Syrian uh, for the women's side and being able to go through a full set of fixtures by the time we get to December hopefully the difficulty with obviously playing in December is the snow and, and, and the actual cold itself because that presents its own set of real issues and problems yeah of course I mean yeah, I, I guess a lot will be up in the end depending on how you know what happens with the health itself public health and I can imagine but uh, yeah great to hear that it could, could be back fairly soon um Let's move on to, I mean, yeah, like I said, the social distancing training sessions that you talked about. Um, sounds like you had a chance to innovate, maybe. Um, and as a coach, how do you, what's what's the preparations as a coach that you can do and what are the restrictions that may be in place uh, that you have to bear in mind now when developing your sessions? What you know, How are you going to adapt to that? And other, other coaches as well, obviously. I think the first thing was it's just not been like, complete overhaul but it's been learning a lot of things again uh, with regards to coaching and having to really think it through in your methodology and why you're doing things and how you can do things because you don't know how long these restrictions are realistically going to be here for we can hear June the 15th but that could change very quickly it could come forwards it could go back we just have to be as realistic as we can with the, the situations we've been given and the rules we've been given uh, so, so it has almost been like learning to divert uh, sort of design a session again yeah we've had uh, the regulations are two meters apart at all times maximum uh, sorry i guess minimum um so you can't get closer than two meters all the players so that's the first problem um they're not allowed to handle any of the equipment so that can that includes balls that includes cones that includes you know vests or anything like that so the players can't handle them so that presents its own problem if the coach has to set everything up yeah definitely after the session we have to clean and disinfect all of the equipment that has been used that again is a big time constraint and time sort of drain and maximum groups of four players per eighth of a pitch so 16 in total per half 32 in the full but you're not allowed to mix groups so it can't be four here four there and then two come over this side and two go that side after 10 minutes they must stay in their group of four the whole time yeah um with the same coach there's one coach per four so it's created a lot of a lot of difficulties in regards to planning I have to plan all the players um, 
to basically arrive and stand on a cone 15 minutes before the session is due to start and just wait and the cones are two meters apart yeah. in their sort of eighth of the pitch um encourage them to arrive with their boots everything on and just jump out of the car and literally walk onto the pitch and stand by their cone and wait um and then you know we can't really take the sessions together so we have to you know as, as the head coach i find it hard because i have to really really trust my assistants just to get on with it and do their own and do it themselves and i've not really got footage of the exercises to show them yeah. because i've never done this before so i just have to hope my pictures and the way i designed it in my head <laughs> yeah. shows to them um so that this it has it's been a real real challenge these last few days um really really difficult to to work it out but the positives that i'm getting out of it of the kids leaving with a smile on their face and they feel not fully together but they're getting something now close to training one of the kids arrived and he ran over to me with his arms wide and then stopped about five meters short and went oh i forgot i forgot i'm so sorry i'm so sorry yeah. <laughs> and had to walk off and you can see they're just really eager and excited to be back and really pleased but they we have to sort of temper that excitement a little bit with yeah. realism i mean i read i saw your session and obviously you can you, you can follow jack on, on twitter at, at jack braz 29 we'll, we'll obviously give you a shout out when the pod goes live um really detailed sort of session plans which i, I really liked you know featuring ball mastery passing body shape angles like it really looks like you've put a lot of thought into it which is great i mean the one thing just listening to that it just seems quite difficult to maybe implement it in the way that you know you might be able to do it as a coach in a very organised way, but if we look at a wider point of perspective, um, maybe with just an eye towards England and, and the chaos out here, and to a certain extent with the league and the plans to resume it, do you, just your independent individual opinion, do, do you see football in England kind of coming back quite soon, or do you think it's, from what you've seen in Norway, how how quickly do you think things will return in in a country that's been more affected by the by the issues, if that makes sense? Because it sounds so hard to plan. It sounds really hard to plan. We're in completely different places because we've been very fortunate here that the government has acted very, very proactively, closed it down early and stopped the spread of the disease fast. Uh, and also you have to consider the geographical and, and cultural sort of things within a country or, or yeah, constraints. Sure. Um, culturally here, people listen a lot more to, to what they're told by the government and, and respect it. Um geographically all the towns and cities are very spread out so if you're going to get a breakout it's much easier to contain the person than it is in the uk where all the cities are very much interlinked yeah. very close um culturally in the uk i don't think we have as uh, as much of a respect for authority um and you know that, that that's a positive and a negative you can take it both ways um here people are very very sort of regimented they understand um this is why we're doing it and this is what we're doing it for um so it, it it's it's been a it's been a you know a really early lockdown i was very surprised when it happened here but then when i saw other countries following sort of two weeks later i was really pleased at how effective and how fast this sort of action had been here sure. but then when you think about england and the uk as, as a whole as a liverpool fan it breaks me but i, I can't I, I can't see it coming back in the same way that we wanted to. The Premier League has to return in some capacity with regards to finishing the league, I think, due to the financial difficulties that it will encounter if it doesn't. But will that look like the Premier League that, as a Liverpool fan, I want? No. Very frustratingly, it won't. But that's also realistic to what we're in now. We need to make sure that we're doing the best thing for everyone's health and and, and, and 
and those sort of those sort of constraints that we have. So I think my opinion is they will bring football back soon in the UK, very very heavily controlled. Um, I think from what I read is the, the the teams will be isolated within hotels. They'll play games at local neutral venues. Lots of testing. I don't know what would happen if someone has a positive test. That's the next question. I think that we'd have to find out. Um, would they postpone the game? Would they make them play it? So on and so forth. Yeah. But, that, it's uh, it's a difficult one because you know what if one Arsenal player gets it and then the whole of Arsenal are then isolated for two weeks. Definitely, uh, I the mean, team that they previously played, yeah. then we, they have to isolate as well because then you've got two teams out there running. How are you going to catch those games up? It's a logistical nightmare. Yeah, exactly. And in Germany, they've already had you know they've returned to training and uh, FC Cologne recently had three players test positive. So I think hopefully in Norway it can it can you know sustain itself. But it, the Premier League it just seems very difficult to imagine at the moment. Um, what is who would you say have been your sort of coaching inspirations moving away from that towards your own general inspirations as a coach and do you watch a lot of elite Serbian football in general follow the league if you do what what are the teams that maybe appeal to you to watch as well as a coach um, teams with interesting ideas or managers with interesting ideas that you perhaps uh, look up to I think growing up um, you know you, my first sort of view of professional management or coaching was Mourinho versus Benitez um, and I found it hard because my internal love for Liverpool was being fought by this fantastic Portuguese manager who would <laughs> wind every Liverpool fan up but he was just magnificent in everything he did and I loved him he was the man I loved to hate and hated to love but I couldn't stop it um, and then also obviously loved Rafa for what he did um, for Liverpool and everything and it was a real contrast of the cold hard approach of, of Benitez and not very emotional character and then you had the very emotional very sort of protagonistic Mourinho um, and they, they were sort of the first two people that made me think oh it was a bit of drama a bit of sort of pantomime about it. I thought I really like this yeah, this yeah. is really cool wait, wait, um, and wait, they really sold it to me which one of the two would you say you were more the cold hearted or as a coach yourself at the moment are you more the cold hearted or more oh. the passionate <laughs> what would you say you in your own now with the young ones, I've got to be the I've got to be the nice guy. <laughs> yeah. I've got to be the guy who puts an arm around and be really kind. But there was definitely some times last year with the 16s where I was the cold tactician and you know, <laughs> I had to stand back a little bit and just be a little bit more objective towards it. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I, I think definitely striking a balance. Uh, but then as I move forwards, you know, I really liked what Guardiola did at Barcelona. Um, I thought it was excellent. I thought he was he was a real sort of innovator for coaching in that sense at that moment in time, and it was really inspirational what he did. Uh, I really liked Brendan Rodgers uh, when he was at Liverpool. I thought he was excellent. I was very disappointed when he left, but then another little you know, real inspiration of mine in, in Jurgen Klopp came out, and, and you know he's you know, he, he just makes me love the game, everything about it. From when he was at Dortmund, the passion, the intensity he brings to it. It just, it doesn't look like a job when he does it. It yeah. just looks like something he really loves to do every day. And it looks like a way of life. And that's sort of the way I see it. It's not a job, it's a lifestyle, it's a way of being. Um, and then I guess when I've, I've, I've come to Norway watching the football, um, I'm not very good with names. Um, that's one thing I, I forget very quickly. Um, all the names here are not ones that I'm used to. So they go in one ear and go out the other, particularly when a Norwegian says them and they pronounce them very, very Norwegian. I yeah. go, I don't understand that because I read it completely different. <laughs> but I really enjoyed watching Buda Glimpse last year. Um, I thought they were superb. 
um, their journey towards. I was really rooting for them to win the Elite Assyrian. Um, just I thought the way they they prepared and the the passion they brought, and the, particularly watching their home games, their fans and the bond they had with their fans, I thought was excellent. Um, I thought it was a really nice sort of story to watch, and yeah. disappointing to see when they didn't quite get over the line at the end. Um, and I'm I'm quite friendly with. Tom, their second team coach, um, so it was texting him every week. What do you think? <laughs> and he was like, oh, "I'm not sure. Like, we're really nervous, but we're excited." He said, oh. And it, it went another week. I said, "It's gone another week. Another bounce." <laughs> what do you think? Oh, it's getting. We're getting nervous again, but I don't know. We might do it. And it was one of those every week, just dropping him a text. We're getting closer. <laughs> so, Tom then. So I really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah we've had him on the show. Yeah, yeah, great, fantastic, brilliant, um, <laughs> top lad. So he was. Um, but that was excellent um, following that last year so I really enjoyed that that sort of that's sort of my first thing watching Norwegian football I went oh, that's really cool I like that yeah and what you know finally we'll wrap it up now I um, really appreciate your time obviously what would you say uh, as a youth coach um, you know let's have a quick comment on the Norwegian young generation that's coming up and, and some thoughts on that you know wh- where do you see the state of Norwegian youth football at the moment you're there day to day you're observing it and um you know what players are there to look out for as well. Maybe at Valerenga that we should we should think about in the future. Um, but firstly, yeah, let's give us your thoughts on the actual current generation that's coming up in the way. Yeah, there's there's some excellent players coming. Um, you know, we, we we're very fortunate here to have great facilities. Every team, you know, from a grassroots up to the top level professional teams, will have you know one or two full astroturf, usually floodlit pitches. That is. You know, it's necessary in, in, in Norway with the snow that we have, but it's still fantastic facilities yeah. uh, world over. Um, so that really, really benefits, you know, what, what the programs that we've got going um, itself, Norwegian football. It's, it's very different. It's run in a different way. Kids are allowed to play without selection until 12, 13 years of age. So they're not put into teams based on quality or, or academy-based systems similar to what we have in the UK um, mm. until they're that sort of age. Uh, and then, you know, it's, 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 it's really growing. I see a real, real positive curve coming over the next few years. And, you know, at Volering, we've got some excellent, excellent players um, that are coming through. You know, I, I'm more aware of sort of the 2003 and a and, and 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8 now generation than the 01s and 02s because, you know, I've worked with the 03s and, and, and younger than that. Um, so so there's, there's lots of players that are coming through there that we look at for, that are playing for also multiple nations um, within that within that group, uh, not just Norway. So really, really positive. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's a really interesting place to work. We went to a game last year as the 16s in the Cup and we played away to Tromsdalen. And that is um, just, just close to Tromsø. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, we didn't think anything much of what we were coming up against, but they pref- they really hurt us. They were really difficult to play against, really well organised, really well structured, um, had a couple of players that were really good and they knew how to play to their strengths, tactically really good. Um, and I think actually one of their players um, has now just gone on, is, is potentially going to Arsenal or potentially in a deal with Arsenal. Oh, wow. um, that's really, really interesting. Um, I saw it on Twitter the other day. Um so there's there's many talents here that are hiding, and it's just taken someone that's quite uh, quite skilled as a scout to spot that talent, and also has a good understanding of the local layout. What final question, probably? What, what makes you think? Why do you think that Norway 
suddenly has this golden generation because it's been many years. I mean, you know, you go back to the 90s. Uh, I remember them, for, you know, I think it was France 98, if I remember rightly. Um, what, what, what's the explanation from your point of view? You're, you're there day to day on the ground. What, what, why do you think there's a sudden ex um, explosion? You mentioned there, like, the tactics in terms of youth uh, training, maybe little mechanisms that they have. Um, why are we suddenly seeing this growth in Norwegian players from, from your perspective? And what can other maybe what can other countries learn maybe from it as well? I think that one of the key things is that we're now going through every year like an academy classification program. Um, so we have to invest a certain amount as a club to get a rating. Uh, really proud of Olleranga to be part of the first five-star academy in Norway, the first club to get it. So it was something really positive for us. But every club sort of has to aspire to get to that level, and they have to invest or match investment. Um, based on these on these characteristics and this classification so I think that's really changed things because clubs are now aspiring to hire the coaches with the right qualifications within the right positions to get themselves a higher classification score which also allows them to get more money from the Norwegian Football Federation right. and so on and so forth what are the classifications based on Sorry. What? Uh, so there's numerous different things. Um, I think there's, there's not eight or nine categories um, that you have to fulfil. Um, one being obviously we call the training process, mm. uh, the process of, of planning sessions, and actually what we actually do on the grass. Um, the, the, the sort of uh, what do we call it? The cooperation club. So how well do we, as a big club, deal with our grassroots clubs in the local area? Um, we also talk about our recruitment strategy. How do we recruit players? You know, is it ethical? How do we deal with the other clubs in the area when we recruit from them? Um, and then also the competency of the coaches. What badges have they got? What experiences have they got? Where have they come from? So on and so forth. And, and then also what positions have you filled within the academy? Because if you haven't got, for example, a full-time 19s coach, you can't get a certain you can't aim for a certain amount of stars within the classification and so on and so forth. Right. So that's, that's professionalised the programme because if you want to have a top-level academy and access the top-level qualifications and the top-level funding from Norwegian Football Federation, you have to have you know, people in the right positions and, and, and the sort of right level. Yeah, definitely. That's really, really fascinating and um, something maybe we'll talk about again in the future. Um, listen, it's been fantastic to talk to you, Jack. It sounds like you've got a really um, promising co coaching career developing there, so we'll, we'll keep an eye out for you. Um, wh where do you see yourself maybe in sort of five years' time? Do you see yourself managing in Norway potentially in the future or do you have intentions to maybe return to, to the UK? What's your? Do you have any kind of plans in that, from that point of view or is it too early to, to say? I used to have plans. <laughs> I used to think of it very, very, very carefully and methodically of what I was going to do but you know it's, it's, the longer I go through this process of coaching the longer I realise the day to day is the most important and if you do your job day to day well then you will get you know what you deserve um, and it's just a case of me working day to day here and doing really well I don't hide the ambition to work again elsewhere abroad um, I'd like to go to another country. I'd like to learn another culture. I'd like to push myself in that regard. But there's no hesitancy for me to move back to the UK if the if the right job appears. Um, but probably not now. Probably in a few years' time. But there won't be a hesitancy for me to go. Yeah, I'd like to go back to the UK eventually. 
Fantastic. Well, yeah, like I say, I really appreciate your time talking to the Nordic Football Podcast. Um, and I wish you every success at Wallarenga, which I hopefully I'm pronouncing slightly better now. Um, much better. But yeah, great stuff. Um, thank you so much for your time. And yeah, we'll, we'll post it up on, on social media so everyone can go and follow Jack as well and, and the coaching sessions which you've laid out, which are very detailed. Um, so thanks so much for joining us, Jack. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Take care.